Hello and welcome to Being Well, I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. So, Dad, how are you doing? I'm really good, and I'm thrilled at the opportunity to talk with Roger Walsh. Yeah, today we have the pleasure of welcoming a wonderful academic and contemplative who's spent over 30 years researching how to enhance well-being to the show. As you said, Dr. Roger Walsh. Roger is a professor of psychiatry, philosophy, and anthropology, as well as a professor in the Religious Studies Program at the University of California, Irvine. He came to the United States from Australia as a Fulbright Scholar, and his research and writing has spanned everything from transpersonal psychology to shamanism to neuroscience. He's the author of a number of books, and his work has been honored with literally dozens of awards. He also has a deep contemplative background and an absolutely fascinating personal history. He's held world records in both the trampoline and the high dive and is a former circus acrobat in another life. So Roger, it's great to be talking with you here. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Thanks so much for the chance of having the dialogue. Yeah, this is going to be great. So Roger, as Forrest and I were talking about this, I said that basically of all the lay practitioners I know, distinct from monastics, you spend the most time on retreat or in deep meditation of anyone I know personally, at least. And which is a striking thing to say, because I do know some people. And uh, <laughs> I wondered, what has drawn you to the contemplative in your life? What has moved you in this direction, particularly alongside other areas, whether in athletics or in medicine or in academia, in which you're already so developed and successful? Why, why add the contemplative? What's, what's moved your heart to it over the years? Well, it's beautiful questions, and perhaps the best way of answering is just to talk a little biographically and say that I came to the United States as a hardcore neuroscientist. I had an MD, a PhD. I, was, did my, I came here to do my psychiatry training at Stanford, and I thought I would basically disappear back into a lab after doing that. <laughs> but uh, California has a way of changing people. <laughs> uh, psychiatry training, uh, clinical training has a way of changing people. I didn't know what the hell I'd gotten myself into. I was really way out of my depth in psychiatry and doing and doing therapy with people. I just really was, you know, the, the inner world, the emotional world was just foreign to me. And I figured I better learn fast. So I went into psychotherapy expecting I'd spend a few interesting weeks and, you know, then go about my life. But I had the good fortune of ending up with an extremely good therapist by the name of Jim Bugenthal a real pioneer and someone who was incredibly mm -hmm. sensitive to their experience and empathic to other people. So he basically trained me to become aware of my own subjective experience and eventually opened me up to the fact that there's an inner universe as vast and mysterious as the outer. And I was just blown away. I had no idea that this inner realm of subjective experiences of images, archetypes, subtle feelings, intuitions, an inner realm of wisdom was available to us. And I felt literally like I'd lived my entire life on the top six inches of a wave on top of an ocean I didn't even know existed. Mm. And as I looked around at the culture, it felt like that was the way most people lived. Yeah. And I was just, I was stunned and utterly confused because at that time there really were very few people doing this deep inner work that I'd been dropped into. So I started exploring basically everything California has to offer. <laughs> you name it, I did it. Esther, Rica, <laughs> TA, TM, uh, Gestalt. Place us in time here. Well, I arrived in the States in the 70s. So I did my psychiatry training in the 70s. And, and gradually I found myself gravitating towards contemplative practices. I would attend, you know, these Indian gurus leading chanting and yoga and meditation. I couldn't figure out why the hell I was doing this stuff and let alone why it seemed to be helpful because I knew religion was the opiate of the masses and a relic of primitive thinking. And it just puzzled <laughs> the hell out of me. Why did these things seem to be working and helpful? Mm. You're saying that, by the way, ironically and quoting Marx, right? I just want to make sure listeners understand you're 
Being sardonic about it. Yeah, go on. Yeah. Except at the time, I wasn't being sardonic about it. Yeah, yeah. At the time, yeah. I literally thought religion was the opiate of the masses. And yeah. there was literally one moment as I was walking across the living room floor in, my, in the apartment when it suddenly hit me that behind the conventional institutions with their rituals and myths and dogma were these far less known, profound, transformative disciplines for training the heart and the mind to cultivate qualities and virtues and capacities and to induce states of consciousness that the founders had realized. And that these were literally disciplines for inducing the same states of consciousness and the same stages of development that the founders and great saints and sages had realized, and that there was this transmission across centuries of wisdom and practices and a kind of technology of the sacred that I had knew nothing about, and it seemed like at that time almost no one in the West knew anything about. And so I just puzzled over this and took two approaches. One, I dove into these practices, and the day after I got tenure, I applied for two years of leave of absence to disappear into a monastery in Asia. <laughs> <laughs> On the other hand, I dove into the Western psychology and philosophy and the Eastern also, like Buddhist philosophy, yogic psychology, etc., just trying to make sense of these things. And so gradually they came together and I just began to appreciate that there was a, a reservoir of profound wisdom and insight and understanding hidden in the contemplative wings of each of the great religious traditions, and that these people knew far more about the mind and human potential and possibilities than I, in my all the years of psychiatric training and neuroscience, had ever glimpsed. And it was just a very humbling and life-changing experience just opened up a whole world. And once you know that these things are available, then of course, you want to dive in and taste them. That's a beautiful introduction, really. And I'm just wondering, when you're bringing together these disparate worlds, right, the West and the East, modern science, ancient wisdom, you're describing a lot of synergy, a lot of integration in your experience. Did you also experience some gears grinding, perhaps? Did you get whiplash moving back and forth between <laughs> an analytic physician's understanding of the neuronal processes in the meat, and then suddenly exploring the depths of the cosmic consciousness. Were there discords in these two realms and worlds you were bringing together, or on the whole, did you find them interacting with each other in your own life with some harmony? I'd say all of the above, Rick, and I kind of gave the final end product but what you're pointing to was that there was a long process of major confusion. Mm, okay. And at the time, there were very few people to talk to about this. So I was really mm, confused yeah. and just trying initially largely on my own to try and fit this together. And then, of course, I became aware of a network of people who were pioneering this and whose wisdom I could draw on, people like Ramdas the initial transpersonal psychology movement, those pioneers, various people who had done very deep practice in the contemplative traditions and were beginning to bring their wisdom back. But the actual synthesis was a long process, which is still a work in progress, of course, for, I think for both of us. Both of us are trying to make sense of this res or reservoirs of wisdom that have come down to us as the wisdom streams of the great religious traditions and trying to integrate them with contemporary knowledge and varieties of disciplines all the way from philosophy through psychology through, and particularly in your case, neuroscience. And I think there's a beautiful way of understanding this process of what a growing number of us are trying to do. And that draws on Carl Jung's concept of the Gnostic intermediary. And Jung's, Jung spoke of Wilhelm, the translator of the I Ching, as a Gnostic intermediary, someone who had taken that wisdom from, that, from the I Ching and managed to translate it into comprehensible terms and concepts and language for a Western audience. And Jung didn't amplify the concept, but I think of a Gnostic intermediary as someone who imbibes a wisdom or a wisdom tradition deeply into themselves enough and knows a 
Western psychological discipline so that they are able to speak from their own experience and translate that wisdom into the concepts and language of the culture and discipline they're speaking to. So there's three kinds of processes. One is imbibing the wisdom. Second is mastering a discipline. And third is translating in a way so as to both legitimate and make the wisdom comprehensible. So I'm going to see if I can kind of, for a general audience who may or may not be feeling at sea at this point, I think that what you're saying is very clear, Roger, but just to kind of do another level of explanation of it. You're talking about the way in which information can come from different sources to people who are new to that information and how people have to kind of put it inside of a framing that they can understand intuitively. Is that more or less accurate? Yeah, very accurate. And there are two challenges we face because through history, various traditions have migrated Mm -hmm. from one culture to another. Mm-hmm. Each of the great religions has migrated to certain extents. So, and in each case, there's been a necessity for a major translation process of rendering the wisdom or the insights understandable in terms of the new language and culture. But we in our time face a novel challenge, and we are translating not only across cultures, but across eras, because mm. these traditions were born in agricultural era. And we are in a postmodern, hopefully beginning a metamodern era ourselves. And so the old language just does not work. You know, spirit, holy ghost, <laughs> you know, those kind of terms. I mean, you know, it's like, yeah, you either buy into that and, and the mythology or you begin to translate and eventually see, oh, the spirit actually is in pretty close implication of consciousness. Mm-hmm. And suddenly things begin to light up. So I think that's what a number of us are feeling. And you're in some ways doing yourself. Feels like this podcast is trying to do that. Absolutely. No, a lot of what's happening right now, I think, is translational and interpretive. And I didn't actually necessarily expect that we would go in this direction when we when we started the conversation. But this is something I would actually love to ask you about, which is that a lot of my friends, in my experience, are actually going through this process right now, where many of them are either kind of discovering personal spiritual practice or they're transitioning from a conventional organized religion background. I have many friends who identify as basically formerly Christian. And the language of the church, as they started entering their 20s and 30s, living largely in California, that's where I'm based, a more progressive area with a different language, they essentially started to feel that that language was no longer speaking to them. But they still felt an attachment to spirit, spirituality, God, in the biggest sense of it. And in the process of doing that, they found new language, many of them in kind of a more postmodern spirituality, a more relaxed form, if you want to kind of think about it that way, of developing a set of personal practices, whether that be in kind of more shamanism or that sort of exploration, or through other forms of religion like Buddhism and non-dual traditions. Is that something that you've seen as a kind of transitional phase for people that you think that people are going through right now broadly? Is that a symptom of this larger thing that you're speaking to? Yes, I think it's a beautiful expression. And it's a beautiful expression also of another Mm. very important developmental process that perhaps we'll get into in more detail. And that is, to my mind, the most exciting discovery in Western psychology the last 50 years is that psychological maturation can continue throughout adulthood. Yep, totally. We used to think maturation pretty much stopped when the body stopped growing. Mm -hmm. But now developmental psychologists have begun to map out a series of steps and stages that people can, they don't have to, and you spend seven hours in front of a TV, you probably won't, but can mature through. And what you're describing, if describing is a particular kind of development, you're describing the development of what's called faith. Yeah. And faith matures through different stages. And Mm. what our culture understands religious faith to be is actually only one stage, and it's the conventional stage, as you described it very appropriately. Technically, it's called literal mythic. Mm. There's a literal belief in the myths, the given myths of the tradition. You know, Moses really did part the Red Sea. Lao Tzu really did live for 900 years. The Buddha really did walk as soon as he was born. All these myths are literally accepted at that stage. But what we in our culture aren't really aware of 
is that there are stages beyond that in which one moves to a through a couple of stages to a kind of individuative reflective stage. That is, one starts reflecting and asking for oneself. Well, is it really true that X, Y, and Z? <laughs> and does that really serve us? Mm. Does that belief that you should do this really serve the well-being and awakening of everyone? Mm. So at this stage, people begin to step back and reflect. They're no longer looking through the lens of the mythology. They're looking at the mythology, reflecting on it, deciding for themselves and in the process individuating, hence the term individuative reflective. Mm. Now, there are stages beyond that, but that's a very important stage, which you, and you, you summarized it very nicely as moving from a conventional to a post-conventional stage. Mm -hmm. And it's, yeah. it's really helpful for people to have this framework, mm. which isn't known in our culture. But if you know about these stages, it's like, Oh, I'm not losing my faith. Mm. I'm not becoming the Antichrist. No, this is a developmental process which is absolutely appropriate. And you know, hopefully this kind of information will get out more widely and people will have the context and support system to nurture them through this kind of developmental process instead of sticking a ceiling on religious spiritual development. To bring it to a kind of a concrete example, I think for a lot of people me, certainly, they get to a point, I think about myself, that the two kinds of conditions that would most prompt me to dive more deeply into practice, either things are going really horribly or things are going really, really well, <laughs> right? Yeah. On the one hand, deep pain is a great motivator. On the other hand, when things are going really, really well, some of the fires are put out. And also there's a tendency to kind of look up, look around and go, huh, is this it? or what might there be more? So mm. when people are at that kind of turning point, maybe when they're moving, when they're kind of getting ready to move into that next developmental stage, what are some of the things you have found that help people, I'm gonna put it in a little bit of a mechanistic way, move to the next level, or even help people to keep on going? What have you seen helps people? Rick, this is really, you're really asking one of the most important questions of our time because I think this is the cutting edge of developmental psychology. Now that we know that there are developmental stages, I think what the question of our time is how do we help people move through those stages? How do we support them? And we don't have a lot of information, unfortunately, but there are a few principles I think we can draw on, and partly from looking at the contemplative traditions and see what they have used all, all these centuries, and partly from some reflection on initial research studies. The first thing that really helps is having a community mm. that shares the values of growth and learning. Mm -hmm. That's crucial. Mm. You know, I spent three years writing a book called Essential Spirituality, The Seven Central Practices, and the question I was really interested in is, what are the qualities of heart and mind that the greatest sages of human history have said are really important to develop in order to live well and fully? And do they have practices for them? And point in fact, yeah, it seemed like there were seven qualities that you could look across traditions. Every tradition, all the sages, or majority of sages pointed to these seven qualities, you know, qualities like positive emotions of love and compassion and joy and the capacity for training attention insight and wisdom, etc. But the biggest surprise of all in writing that book, Essential Spirituality, was that in every single tradition said that for every single quality, if you want to develop this quality, hang out with people who have it. Mm. It's like they all recommended finding people who embodied the qualities that we want to develop and spending time with them. And ideally, that's a peer community. But it also, of course, includes teachers and guides and way showers, people who you know, step ahead of us and show us what to do and what to avoid, etc. So that's the, that's the first thing. A community makes an enormous difference, and along with a community, a teacher of some kind, finding someone who's a little wiser. And that also applies just to people who excel in any number of disciplines and domains, uh, have a friend... Uh, John O'Neill, who wrote a book on remarkable leaders, and 
So, of course, wanted to find out what he'd learned from them. He said, well, what do these people have in common? What do they do? And his answer really floored me. He said, they all have mentors. It's like these are people in the 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, at the Mm. peak of international careers. What do you mean they have mentors? Mm. Mm -hmm. They always are looking for people they can learn from. So I said, okay, all right, well, maybe I should take a lesson from (laughs) So teachers practice of some kind, some sort of discipline, and it varies enormously from partly that depends, of course, on what we're drawn to, from nature to contemplation to therapy or counseling for some people to any number, you know, we could range across the disciplines and you know them as well as I do. So some sort of discipline seems essential. Study seems helpful. Hmm. It just seems very helpful to imbibe the wisdom of of more mature people. But study done in a particular way in what the Christians call Lectio Divina, divine reading, which is not a reading for information, but a reading for transformation. Mm. And it's a reading which is done in a very leisurely way, lingering over just very brief parts of a text, you know, a sentence or a couple of lines, perhaps, and really letting them work their transformative effect on us. So that kind of thing can be very valuable. Solitude is the complement to community and very important practice. You know, they're just, and particularly solitude in nature. Mm. There's something just healing about nature as uh, contemporary researchers say we're biophilic. We're naturally drawn, which is all a fancy new way of saying that nature is healing. Yes. So all of these and more are, are ways that, they're available to all of us, and hopefully our culture will become more aware of the value of these. And so, yeah. Well, I would love to kind of make this really real for people by asking about your own process here, Roger, where you're referring to all of these things that are really helpful for people in order to like develop their individual understanding, whether it's of their spiritual practice specifically, or it's of just as a human, as they go through the stages of life and as they develop over time. So in your own life, in your own experience, are there flashbulb moments that you have that stick out to you of individual experiences that were really transformative or that had just a really big impact on your life from that moment forward? Yeah, there there are some. And as you, you know, there's also a much slower gentler, tra- ongoing transformative process that occurs. Absolutely, yeah, totally. I, th- I totally. think I mentioned one of them, certainly, you know, was the, well, the, the recognition of what these contemplative traditions are about and their work. That was, that was one. Mm. There are certainly, let's see, I'm trying to think if there are any flashbulb <laughs> flash moments that are coming to mind. Yeah, take your time with that. No pressure. (laughs) (laughs) I'm aware of certain processes, like the power of intimate relationship. I had the very good fortune of uh, many years to being married to the psychologist Frances Vaughan, who was just an extraordinarily wise woman. And that relation, and we specifically dedicated the relationship to mutual learning and awakening. And intimate relationship, which I didn't mention among the practices, is just a, can be an extraordinarily powerful and transformative commitment and process. So I realize I'm not pointing to one moment there, but I am pointing more to a particular sphere that is available to most of us. Have you ever had a dark night of the soul? Not in the classic sense of, you know, dark night of the soul of having a really profound opening and then a, then losing that experience of the divine or the sacred. My own path has been <laughs> somewhat mundane. You know, I'm not one given to intellect, <laughs> given to spiritual fireworks. I'm more of a plotter. And you, you, Rick, were talking about you've spent a lot of, that I'd spent a lot of time in retreat. Well, there's one reason for that. I'm, I need it. You know, I've had <laughs> friends who just, you know, we started at the same time and they just roared ahead. And I'm, you know, I'm a little on the obsessive, you know, slow, rigid side. It's taken a lot, you know, it's taken a lot of practice. So, yeah. So I haven't had a lot of those mind-boggling openings that people refer to in which everything changes dramatically. It's more been 
gradual accretions of this insight. Oh, that. Oh, that's how it works. Oh, this mm. is the, what the mind does. You know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, I would love to ask about your study and kind of practice of all of these different studies and practices. So you have such a broad breadth of knowledge of the world's different wisdom traditions. One of the things we were talking about before we started recording is that you've really touched on or studied or researched most of these different things that are out there, or at the very least, many of them. And amidst all of the individual that exists, all of the differences, all of the ways in which they disagree or contradict each other, whatever, are there elements of them that you have found to be universal that have positive lessons for our very mortal lives right now? Yeah, definitely. In fact, that's been certainly one of the great interests of my life. As I mentioned, looking across traditions and finding the truly great saints and sages of history and trying to see what have they said we should be doing and aware of and learn and know. So been very fortunate, as we all, all three of us are, and a lot of our audiences, in being able for the first time in history to draw from all these traditions and learn from them all. And I think it's very easy for those of us in the contemporary West, and particularly in San Francisco as we are, to forget what an extraordinarily rare mm. event mm. historically it is yeah, to have totally. multiple traditions available to us and to not end up on a funeral pyre if you start exploring them. Yep. And if you think back, the last time I can think of a time when something like this was available was in Alexandria 2,000 years ago. Mm. So mm. it's very rare historically. And so it is this incredible opportunity to look across traditions and try to make sense of them. And so I think, yes, there are certainly common themes. First off, there's an understanding of human nature across these traditions. And that understanding is first ontological, that is the very nature of our being, is that we're kind of amphibians. We will seem to live in this physical material world, but that's not all there is to it. There is a what was traditionally called a spiritual world or a realm of consciousness that we can remain oblivious to for a lifetime, but in which, which is actually our home. So that's one dimension of understanding. Secondly is a kind of ethical dimension. And I'm here, I'm, I'm kind of summarizing what's called the perennial philosophy, the core philosophical assumptions across the great traditions. The second dimension is an ethical one, which says that the most important thing we can do with a human life is to awaken to our contemplative spiritual consciousness nature. So that's that's a second dimension. A third is the ethic of service, that the greatest contribution we can make is both to relieve suffering in the physical domain and to help people awaken to their own true nature themselves, so that we awaken not for ourselves alone, but in order to help and heal others and to help them awaken also. So that's the kind of philosophical or contextual understanding that we find across traditions. Then there are practice commonalities. If we look across the practices, you can divide them up in various ways. In, for example, Buddhism, there's a division into ethics and concentration and more insight wisdom. I found when I was looking across traditions, I found it seemed like there were seven kinds of practices that really stood out. And that was actually what I summarized in the book, Essential Spirituality, The Seven Central Practices. The first was ethics, that a foundation in ethics is essential. Across traditions, there's agreement that ethics is crucial. And without that kind of foundation, you really can't open to the higher reaches of human possibility. But ethics is understood in a more psychologically mature way, not just do this or God will get you, which is a very primitive early understanding, or even the conventional understanding of do this because that's what good people do or nice people do this. But a not even a post-conventional, but a trans-conventional understanding that practicing ethics is a profoundly transformative discipline in and of itself. And it's based on the recognition of the way the mind works, that every time we act unethically, every time we intend to harm others or ourselves, 
If you turn inward at that moment, what you find are motives and emotions such as greed and fear and anger and jealousy, which are basically painful and destructive. Mm -hmm. And if you act them out, you reinforce them. But on the other hand, the good news is if you move to kindness and compassion and love and joy and helping others have that, when you turn in, you find those qualities. And if you act those out, you reinforce them. So once you do that, you see that ethics is not, as we tend to think of it in this culture, self-sacrifice. It's enlightened self-interest. It's just a way of living that makes sense if you want to have a good life. So there's that ethical foundation. Then there's training the mind, for example, for attention, to be able to hold the mind on a chosen object because the mind takes on the qualities of what we attend to. And then refining sensitivity, refining perception, and refining our internal sensitivity. And then emotional transformation is a fourth discipline, reducing painful, destructive emotions like fear and anger and jealousy and cultivating beneficent ones of love and joy and compassion. And then developing insight and understanding and wisdom and seeing how things are, which is one simple definition of wisdom. And then as a culmination, using all these qualities and capacities that have been developed for this welfare and awakening and service of others, because we don't practice for ourselves alone, because we're not ourselves alone. And to do that just reinforces the ego rather that all these practices are done in this ultimately for the service of all, the welfare and awakening of all. So we've got the kind of contextual philosophical framework of understanding across traditions. Then we've got the practices, and then those practices point to the qualities of heart and mind that you find across the world are valued and emphasized by saints and sages and each of these traditions. I think one of the things that's really helpful when listening to someone like you who has really an an encyclopedic understanding of the many different categories of practice and the many different paths and the way they fit together, it can be really helpful to look at oneself and in terms of almost like a kind of internal pre-flight checklist, how am I doing? Practice A, check, pretty solid. Practice B, yeah, that one's really good. Practice C, what? (laughs) That might be really useful for me, et cetera, et cetera. And so I, I wanted to ask you a personal question, Roger, if I could. I was heartened to hear you describe yourself as a plotter because I kind of sort of think of myself like that, uh, someone who just plugs away, you know, no lack of effort, effort to a fault maybe over time even. And I just kind of wondered for you, with your knowledge of all the different tools in the toolbox, the different practices that one can engage in, has there been one in particular maybe that's been particularly hard for you that you've known would indeed be helpful But, wow, that one you've kind of struggled with. Yeah, great question. (laughs) The answer is probably several. (laughs) (laughs) I'll mention one that, you know, is just by my very nature is not open to me. That is, you know, the path of aesthetics for people, the path of beauty. And I'm colorblind and somewhat, seem to be somewhat tone deaf. So so I live in a, a... as opposed to your technicolor world, I live in a much more constricted one. And so I'm just aware that, that I'm, I'm not open to that path, uh-huh. and a lot of that is lost to me. Yeah. So I think uh, balance is another thing that I have trouble with. I tend to be somewhat of a workaholic, so I think I would be served by taking just more quiet downtime and quiet time and relaxation time. And I gave a sermon about the value of of community and being with friends, it would probably serve me to spend less time at my desk and more time with friends <laughs> So, and community. So that's another thing. Let's see, one thing that was close to me, I'm very cerebral by nature. So it, there was a long period of, of heart opening and I owe a lot to my beloved late wife, Frances Vaughan, for that because she was very heart opened and began that opening for me. So I'm very grateful for that. Those are some things. And then I think there's a process to it too, Rick, which you kind of implied, and that that we fluctuate. And, you know, sometimes things are flowing well in this direction, in this element, and not so well in that domain. And so it's an ongoing process. And 
unfortunately, I think one thing I've found, I suspect all of us have found, is you never seem to get through something finally. I found the best way of bringing back a problematic situation or emotion like anger or something to say, well, I'm finally through with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like a recipe for disaster. I wanted to ask a kind of follow-up question briefly, which is that the ultimate kind of knowledge or knowing or gnosis is beyond language. It's beyond words. It's beyond ideas. It's beyond intellectual categories. And I just kind of wondered how you practice yourself, even in your own meditative practices, to, I would say, use your insight, your understanding, maybe I'll put it away, to bring you close to the abyss and then whoosh, cast loose from those familiar moorings and just open out into everything. How do you help yourself at that launch point? And how do you help all that you know with its verbalness and so forth to not get in the way of opening into the ultimate? Well, you just reminded me of another challenge I've had, (laughs) which is moving transconceptual, yes. Certainly the attachment to understanding and the intellect was a significant barrier for me. And there was a stage in my meditation practice where I diligently read through a lot of the stages of meditating insight from the classic Buddhist texts. And I had this Indian teacher, he summed me up very quickly, said, hmm, are you very scholarly? Yeah, yes. Have you read these texts? Yes. Oh, such a pity. <laughs> so, so it was a, uh, a trap. At this stage, fortunately, the practice I'm doing are primarily awareness practices. That is simply resting. The, one of my favorite practices is the Tibetan Dzogchen practice. So simply resting in awareness. It's the essence of the practice is ultra-simplicity. It's simply letting go and allowing any doing to dissolve. And when one does that, one finds that as the mental activity subsides, one just is in the awareness that all is always already present and that is our true nature. So the way out of the intellect is not by using the intellect or by any doing whatsoever. It's a simply a relaxation. And that's one of the beautiful discoveries of a certain stage in the path. And you know, I sh- I, we probably should talk about the different phases. There are initial phases where it's really appropriate to work, to train the mind, to discipline oneself, to cultivate particular qualities. And at a certain stage, it's also important to let all those go and allow the mind to dissolve and, and for what the Christian contemplatives call, allow the mind to fall into the heart, the heart being the pure awareness at the center of our being. So that for me has been the way out of that trap. That's really lovely, Roger. And this kind of takes me in a way to a piece that you wrote, I think it was about 10 years ago, where it was on therapeutic lifestyle changes, which was basically the idea that, hey, maybe as a, as a collective, as psychologists, as psychiatrists, as whatever, we're really underestimating the impact of some of the really basic lifestyle and behavioral stuff on what really goes in to promoting or creating somebody's well-being, how long they live for, their psychological health, whatever. And maybe we should be paying a little bit more attention to things like how much exercise you get, how often you're outside, and the the strength of your strong interpersonal relationships. Because what strikes me about what you're saying there is how behavioral it is, how you're talking about very simple practices, whether it's like a very simple awareness practice or it's the appreciation for your intimate romantic relationship with somebody else, or it's about finding a mentor or whatever. These are like things that occur out in the world, not things that necessarily occur uh, inside of the dome, if that kind (laughs) of makes sense. So I just love any reflection you have on that in terms of the importance of just behavior and like changing the circumstances of your surroundings for cultivating mental health. Yeah, thank you for bringing this up. Absolutely crucial. And My work has been in the psychiatry department of the University of California, and 
I basically wrote that article because I was so pained at the shape that uh, contemporary Western psychiatry is taking with its emphasis on pharmacology and drugs for almost everything. And it's not necessarily the psychiatrist's fault. The medicine is, Western medicine is largely dictated by economic forces. And the insurance companies only want to, it's much cheaper for them just to pay a physician to write a prescription than it is for them to sit down with someone, look at their lives, look at their lifestyle choices they're making that are painful and destructive, and monitor them over a period of months through a, effectively mm -hmm. a lifestyle rehabilitation process. That's crucial, and I want to just emphasize what you said, Forrest, that lifestyle and simple mm. behavior is incredibly important, and that we in the West have just Western mental health and culture. And things are beginning to change, fortunately, but we've still got a long way to go to recognize just how important and powerful and transformative the choices we make about how we spend our time are. And they can really, you know, destructive lifestyle choices, as we all know, can be very destructive. And yet healthy lifestyle choices and some of the things you mentioned, from time in nature to exercise to diet, you know, exercise is as powerful as most antidepressants most of the time. Yeah, mm -hmm. most of the time. And yet, you know, how often do we hear that? So, yeah. Sure, totally. Yeah, so thank you for emphasizing. If you could, if you could patent, absolutely. But just kind of to reinforce what you're saying, part of the issue, as, as Rick has said to me many times, is that like, if you could patent basic experiences of happiness, if you could find a way to like drop that into a drug or like basic experiences of connection, if you could patent 15 minutes of running on the treadmill, you know, that drug would be in every... It would be it just at every store because it's so effective. The actual, if you look at the the studies comparing the impact of formal antidepressants to many other forms of intervention, what you consistently see is a session of therapy is often about as effective as a antidepressant with fewer side effects associated with it. So it is just like a major thing that we're kind of dealing with as a field as a whole right now. Yes, and we should add there is one other modulator here, and that is that lifestyle changes require effort and maintenance. And so it's just a lot easier to take a pill. Yeah. And yeah. so, yeah, Rick's, Rick's right. Yeah. And there's also the challenge that we all have of psychological inertia and maintaining the discipline and knowing what we should do, but uh, I'm not sure I want to do it today. <laughs> so <laughs> I wonder if at this point we could talk about wisdom even more explicitly, because obviously it's been the subject all along. And I wonder if I could read from a book from a very wise fellow. Oh, Dr. Roger Wolf, what is wisdom and how can it be cultivated? These are two of the most important questions of human existence, yet they are tragically neglected in our contemporary culture. This is, by the way, from Roger's book, wonderful gem, just a freaking masterpiece, The World's Great Wisdom, Timeless Teachings from Religions and Philosophies. So to continue, we are inundated with information and drowning in data, yet largely bereft of wisdom. And then to continue from the very end of his book, wisdom has fallen on hard times. Once revered as one of the greatest of all virtues, it is now eclipsed by the success of science and technology, as well as the torrent of new information and data. The costs of this eclipse are all around us. We see them in the suffering of individual lives, in social strife, and in global crises that threaten both our planet and our species. In fact, the need is greater than ever. So great is our technological power that the state of the world now reflects the state of our minds, and what we call our global crises are actually global symptoms, symptoms of our psychological and spiritual immaturities, our individual and collective pathologies. In short, our global crises reflect our lack of wisdom, and humankind is now in a race between sagacity, wisdom, and catastrophe. What can we do? What can we do? Well, thank you for reading that, Rick, because it really is, this is the great question of our time. 
I don't think it's any secret to anyone, anyone in your audience that we really are in a crisis, in using crisis in the precise medical sense as a time when an outcome could go either way. We could lose almost everything and have, at worst, a social collapse, or we could transform into a much more skillful, mature, effective, humanitarian ways of being. And the fate of our, yes, the fate of our species and our planet does depend on it. And so the question you're asking, what can we do, is it's important to know what kind of question that is, because there are two kinds of questions. There are knowledge questions and there are wisdom questions. And knowledge questions have a one-time answer. Is it raining outside? Look out the window. No rain. End of question. But wisdom questions are more like Zen koans. They're Mm. questions that each time we ask them have the potential for taking us deeper into the question, deeper into ourselves, and deeper into life. And so the question, what can we do and what can I do to contribute and help with the great challenges we're facing? Is a wisdom question. We shouldn't expect that we just come up with an answer like that. It's really something that is crucial for us to reflect on and feel into and feel into oh, the, 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 our unique situation of, okay, given my capacities and talents and who I know and what I know and my particular circumstances, what could I do? And then there's a second question, which is, okay, not only what can I do, but what am I, do I feel called to do? Because each of us are called, each of us resonates to a particular kind of suffering. Each of us feels called in our heart to a particular kind of activity. And then there's a third question which complements these. And it's not only what can I do and what am I feel called to do, it's what is the most strategic thing I could do? Mm-hmm. Where's my leverage point? in which I can make the most strategic contribution. Yes, just as Gandhi Gandhi said, anything I do may seem insignificant given the scope of the issues, but it's really crucial that I do it and that I find my most effective contribution to whatever extent I can. So that's the first kind of stage of responding to this question of what I can do. And then there are, once we have a feel into those, then we'll be drawn into particular paths of action. And again, it really helps to have a community of like-minded people dedicated to the same, same kinds of outcome. It really helps to have guides whom we, we can call on for, for reflection, to, to ask for suggestions and advice. It really helps to learn as much as we can about the situations we're facing. And for those people, and I suspect almost all of your audience, who are contemplatives, who do have a practice of some kind, it becomes really important to recognize, as you said, that the challenges we're dealing with are are symptomatic of the psychological and spiritual dysfunctions within us and between us, and that the most skillful actions of all will address both the outer world and its crises, relieving starvation, inequality, reducing pollution, etc., and will simultaneously try to address the inner psychological, spiritual roots within us and between us. And that requires doing whatever we're doing as a spiritual practice. So now, and the best looking across traditions, the Indian tradition has a wonderful discipline of karma yoga, yoga the yoga that takes one's work in the world as one's spiritual practice and uses it to learn and grow so so that ideally then our social action becomes the most skillful contribution we can make and addresses the underlying issues, underlying psychological spiritual causes and becomes part of our own spiritual practice. So, you know, and of course, we could expand on this at length, and it'd be wonderful if you felt moved to do so, but maybe I should stop, and I'd love to hear your responses to to this question, because they're, you know, they're questions for up for all of us. Yeah, I would just like to add briefly that when facing challenges that seem so vast and sweeping, 
and also listening to wisdom that also seems vast and sweeping, a person can feel small and helpless and confused. What do I do? And a reflection I've had that's that's actually served me a lot, and, and I've been reflecting about it before this conversation, is what I might call deep insight applied to many small things, many little things. This breath, this interaction, this cleaning of the dish. I think there's a koan from Zen that is summarized as rice in the bowl, water in the bucket. The simplicity of that, you know, putting the trash in the garbage, being a little thoughtful about our footprint on the planet, in our interactions with people, in the range of options we might have in, in each moment, in the kind of turn-taking, volleying back and forth, like a tennis game of interactions, you know, going toward the high end of the range of what's possible rather than sinking down to the, you know, crummiest bottom of the range. Many, many little things accumulating over the day, little teeny-weeny efforts that add up over time. Now, this is, of course, the philosophy of a fellow plotter, but to me, it's very hopeful mm, mm-hmm. because it says that we can integrate the wisdom that we're getting that is vast and deep and applying it to each grain of rice, you know, mm. each breath, each way we open a door, each word we use, you know, each day. And that, to me, is reassuring and hopeful. Yeah, that's so beautiful, Rick. It really brings it down to our daily activity and takes it out of the stratospheric and and makes us realize that every action counts and that that we can all contribute in our daily lives. And you're reminding me of that beautiful saying of Mother Teresa's, we can't all do great things, but we can all do small things with great love. Yes. And yeah, very beautiful. Are there other things both of you do, the things you've found? A minor reflection, which is less about my individual practice and more about the translation of practice between people, is I think that one of the most important traits that you can develop as a human is non-judgmentality, essentially. And so many of the conversations that I've had about anything that even approaches a wisdom sphere or universality sphere or transpersonal or spirituality or whatever are seeped in intense view. People have extremely strong views around these topics, which is natural. They're huge topics and they're very identity defining. And the closer that we get to like identity definition for a person, the more vulnerable we're going to be inside of that conversation because any disagreement becomes an attack on identity. And then, you know, we're off to the races together, basically. (laughs) So One of the things that's really helped me is taking a very soft stance, both with myself and with other people, around their own practice or their own perspective. And what I found is that the softer that I'm able to be in terms of my receptivity to somebody else's view around these topics, or including the softer I'm able to be around my own receptivity to my own view, the further I get inside of the conversations, the more I learn, the more I'm able to explore, the more open I become to other ways of being. So that has been absolutely a practice that I've tried to cultivate in this area. And I think that that non-judgmentality has made other people much more comfortable engaging these topics with me, which has helped me then learn about these topics. And I've gone on my own little progression from a fairly hardcore atheist to a much more, I don't know, like shrugging agnostic um, (laughs) around many of these things with a lot of appreciation for all the things that I don't know. And so I think that that has been one of my one of my personal practices inside of it. Yeah. That's so beautiful. Uh, you know, there's so much emphasis, particularly in the Eastern traditions, to which a lot of us have been exposed on the non-attachment side, the letting go of letting go of craving. Yeah. But the yeah. mirror image side of that is, of course, the letting go of condemnation, letting go of the aversion, the judgment. So essentially you're talking a practice of mm. sometimes just simply called forgiveness, profoundly understood as a relinquishment of, of aversion. Mm. And I love the thing you said at the end about coming to agnosticism and appreciating the mystery. And, <laughs> you know, it feels like at bottom, it's just, and let me <laughs> take that back. There is no bottom. It's bottomless mystery <laughs> in every direction, every domain. It's like we are 
you take a couple of steps back to look at your presuppositions and claims and what you think is true, you just dropped into mystery, mm -hmm. utterly bottomless mystery. And I've just come to think that that's really one of the hallmarks of wisdom is, is a recognition and acknowledgement of mystery. And so important. And in the, you know, the twin lions which guard the gates of the Eastern temples are sometimes said to represent confusion and paradox. And the person who would have true wisdom must be willing to walk through both. Mm. And we tend to misunderstand growth and insight and understanding. We tend to think it goes from confused to clear to clearer to clearest. And actually, it goes from clear to confusion. It's like, wait. <laughs> Uncertain yeah. and lost. Absolutely. Yes. And then you get a bigger picture and it's like, oh, yeah, now I get it. And then that's what has to go next. Mm -hmm. And in the Carlos Castaneda books, which were so enormously popular in the 70s and 80s, were supposedly of Castaneda receiving teachings from a Yaqui uh, Indian man of, man of knowledge, the four traps of a person of knowledge are first, fear, second, power, because as you get on the path, you develop some power. The final one is old age the, and the loss of capacity and the temptation just to give in and not practice anymore. But the third is the one that's most interesting. The third trap is clarity. Clarity with the understanding that when you really think you really see things and everything's clear, that's what you have to give up next. Mm. So I love your point about yeah, agnosticism, mystery, but agnosticism <laughs> not in any sense of a put down yeah. or a limitation, but a recognition that that's the way things are. We don't know. Yeah, absolutely, Roger. Well, I really yeah, so love that. I really appreciate it. And I think that this was a wonderful reflection to end on here. We've taken so much of your time today. Thank you so much for doing this with us. Oh, what a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for the privilege of First, you're getting to dialogue with you, and secondly, putting these ideas out. I mean, this is this is what we've lived for: is to kind of try to figure what little we can out, and then to to share it. So, thank you very much for the opportunity of doing that. It's been really a pleasure, Roger. Yeah, that was great. Thank you very much. So today we had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Roger Walsh. Roger is a professor at the University of California, Irvine. And he's also just a deep and thoughtful and really very wise person himself. And that's a great deal of what we focus today's conversation on, wisdom, and particularly the different traditions from which wisdom springs and the ways in which we can bring them together in our own life. The conversation began with Roger sharing some of his personal background and how he kind of transitioned from spending so much of his life focused in intensely academic, intellectually-oriented pursuits, and slowly moved toward more contemplative practices until he arrived at where he is now, where he really truly brings the two together in his work. One of the themes that lay underneath the conversation, for me at least, was this idea of progression and transition. How it's very normal for people to go through stages of development in their life. And it's tempting for us to view these stages as a kind of ranking, like have you moved quickly enough from stage A to stage B? But the truth is that everyone takes their own time, and what works for one person may not work for another. Roger kind of lovingly described himself as a bit of a plotter, someone who has been dogged in their pursuit of knowledge and wisdom and personal growth, but who hasn't really necessarily had this white light moment that really stood out to him when I asked him after it. Instead, he's accumulated knowledge over time, and I think that that really echoes many of our experience in this territory. I asked Roger about some of the key themes that he saw as being consistent across the world's wisdom traditions, and he mentioned a few things that I thought were really interesting. The first was that most everyone who becomes truly wise has a mentor. Even the highest level performers have coaches. And much is the same way for our personal development. Just because you've come a long way doesn't mean you won't necessarily be benefited by getting a second opinion from somebody who's traveled a similar path. Roger and Rick talked for a little while about the integration of practice, about the different ways that we can practice in the world and how we can really bring that practice home. Roger, toward the end, asked a question about how we were integrating our practices and how we were trying to bring you know, wisdom to play in a fashion in our own lives. We also spent a little time talking about psychology and psychiatry 
where Roger gave an opinion on the relative overprescription of drugs and how therapeutic lifestyle changes of different kinds, changes to behavior, like going outside more, exercising, and so on, can often be extremely effective interventions, even rivaling or exceeding the effects of medication in some cases. And Roger kind of closed with an extended reflection on the nature of wisdom today and on the unique challenges that we're facing inside of our culture, and alongside them, the opportunity that we have to integrate the knowledge from different traditions, an opportunity that truly hasn't been seen before in world history. There is so much out there to learn, so much out there to appreciate, and that stance of kind of healthy agnosticism that I shared toward the end can be a really great ground from which to explore these different ideas. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Roger Walsh. If you've been enjoying listening to the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe to it through the platform of your choice, maybe even leave a rating and a positive review, and hey, tell a friend about it. It really does help other people find the podcast. Also a reminder that I have a new YouTube channel. If you prefer watching things to listening, you might enjoy some of the content that I post there. I posted a new video pretty recently, and you can check it out through the link in the description of today's podcast. Finally, if you enjoy the show and you want to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. Again, I truly appreciate your support of the show. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.